You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Nashville Statement is a confessional document released by CBMW in 2017. Since its release, the Nashville Statement has been signed by over 25,000 evangelical pastors, scholars, and leaders, as well as adopted and affirmed by evangelical churches and institutions across the world. In this podcast series, we are walking through each of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications with Denny Burke, president of CBMW and one of the principal authors of this statement. Today, we are tackling Article 8. I'm Colin Smothers, executive director of CBMW. And I'm Denny Burke, the president of CBMW. Article 8 reads this way. We affirm that people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life, pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ, as they, like all Christians, walk in purity of life. We deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is part of the natural goodness of God's original creation, or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. Jenny, what is it that we are trying to get at in this article? You know, article 8 is interesting coming on the heels of Article 7, because Article 7 is saying, look, you ought to have a self-concept that's in line with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption, which means if you adopt a homosexual self-concept or adopt a transgender self-concept, you're out of line with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. After you read Article 7, you might think, well, what does that mean then? You know, A person can't acknowledge they have certain patterns of temptation in their life. Some people have patterns of homosexual temptation in their life, that they feel attraction for the same sex. They can't ever acknowledge that. That's not at all what we're saying. In fact, if you're going to be a serious Christian, you need to be well aware of what your sinful proclivities are so that you can lay them at the foot of the cross and see victory over them and to see through the spirit that they are put to death, all of that. So, so we're not at all, we weren't at all saying that you can't be real about what your patterns of temptation are and that some of them could be very much entrenched. In fact, in in Article 8, we say people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life, pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for some listeners, this may not be news, but for some of them, it might be news that there are Christians who continue to wrestle with same-sex temptations. They They don't want to feel them. They would rather not feel um, temptations in this direction, but they continue to experience them after they become a Christian. And so Article 8 is acknowledging that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrestling with these temptations and who are trying to walk faithfully with Christ. Now, if you've, you know, I've been at this for a while. I've talked to lots of people over the years with and heard lots of different testimonies from people about um, what what it's like to experience same-sex attraction. I'm not in this category. I've got my own sin patterns and proclivity. This isn't one of them. But I've heard from lots of folks. And I, I remember once years ago hearing from a student. And um, a student came to me, and after we were talking about this in one of my classes, and she said to me that she had become a Christian like maybe two or three years before. It wasn't long, long before. But she was in a committed, les- she was in a lesbian lifestyle. And then the Lord saved her, and she said immediately all of those temptations were taken away. Hmm. And she didn't experience those temptations anymore. And 
it was like immediate freedom right when she got saved. Well, that's the only time I've ever heard anybody have that testimony who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, it was something that after they were saved, that God changed their mind about their mindset. God led them to repent of the lifestyle that they had lived before. Um, they knew that they needed to repent of the feel, you know, same-sex attraction that they were feeling. You, you hear things like that, but I never heard somebody saying, well, it just was all taken away. The ordinary experience was that God changed their mind through repentance and faith and through the Holy Spirit, but then they had continuing struggles after that, and they had to learn to walk in holiness with this particular burden and this particular struggle. And so it, 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 there was different levels of struggling here. Some people, they still, in their struggles, had the ability to be married and were you know, married to someone of the opposite sex, even though they continued with these, these sin struggles. But then others, they didn't have a, even a desire to be with the opposite sex, and they were still struggling with these same-sex um, feelings, and they were just really, really intense. Now, what we want to acknowledge is that those people exist in the world, and the difference between them, their experience, like a Christian experience of that, and a non-Christian experience of that, is not the experience of the temptation, right? Because Christians are tempted. The difference is whether or not you walk in repentance and holiness, that's the difference. And we want to say that even if a person finds themselves struggling with temptations of a, a in same-sex attraction after they're a Christian, that doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. They can walk in holiness and faithfulness with Christ by agreeing with what the Bible teaches about these things and then walking in the way that Jesus says, the path of holiness. Yeah, Denny, I've been a Christian for nearly 30 years now, and while my sin patterns have certainly become sanctified. I'm, I'm not a person who says I am without sin. I experience temptation. I experience uh, sin that I need to repent of, you know, as, as a believer. And it seems to me, looking at the conversation, especially the side B conversation, uh, they tend to, to put homosexuality in a category of sin uh, of its own in a way that they've accused the church of doing in, in the past, that homosexuality is kind of this third rail that you know, the gospel doesn't have anything to, to say to. And it seems like the side B conversation does the same thing, uh, just on the opposite side of it. But what Article 8 seems to be saying is, no, the experience of same-sex attraction, um, that temptation, if, you, if you're tempted to, to lust in that way, that's an opportunity for repentance, just like every other Christian has an opportunity for repentance uh, anytime some sin opportunity presents itself. And in that way, we're just affirming the reformational truth the biblical truth that Luther said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would argue that same-sex attraction is really a, a species of the kind of sin that Jesus prohibits in Matthew 5. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about the Ten Commandments, he's teaching on the law. He teaches about the Ten Commandments, and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Anyone who looks at a woman to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says that if it's not just the doing of adultery that's wrong, it's the desiring of adultery that's also wrong. And what I think Jesus is doing there is he's, he's not being an innovator. He's just bringing together the seventh commandment and the 10th commandment. 
The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And then the 10th commandment says, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. So the seventh commandment is forbidding the deed. The 10th commandment is forbidding the desiring of the deed. So Jesus is just telling us what the law always meant all along in Matthew 5. It, you're not really walking with Christ if all you're doing is avoiding the wrong deeds, but you're cherishing the wrong desires. So if so, he's saying, look, you may not actually have ever slept with another man's wife, but if you're desiring this and you're cultivating this interest in your heart, you're, that sinfulness is already there. So uh, you're, you're, you already have moral culpability for sin because you're desiring this. So what's, what's the pattern that you see? It's not just our deeds that are desired when it comes to sin, that are, that are implicated. It's not just our deeds that are implicated in sin. It's also our desires. And so that would apply to not just aberrant heterosexual desires, but also homosexual desires. Any person who feels a pattern of temptation towards the same sex needs to realize it's not just avoiding the deeds, but it's also recognizing that the desires themselves are disordered and sinful. And whenever you feel them and whenever they are cropping up in your heart, that you would repent of those. Now, oftentimes what I'll hear from folks when we say things like that is, well, I can't, it's like repenting of myself. Well, now we're back again to this idea of identity. That's right. Who you are is not what you feel all the time. Your feelings betrayed you. God designed you. If you're a man, he designed you to be wedded to a woman if there is going to be a sexual relationship. If you're a woman, to be wedded to a man if there's going to be a sexual relationship. He did not make you for same-sex desires. Even if your feelings powerfully are trying to tell you otherwise, your feelings are wrong. That's not who you are. That's not who God designed you to be. So repenting of same-sex desires is not repenting of you, okay? It, because it's not repenting of what God's design for you. It's embracing God's design for you, even though your feelings may be betraying you. And I think in that way, uh, what Article 8 helps us to do is to put this sin in its proper place. Again, thinking of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, what, what Paul says, uh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on, he lists this, this litany of sins that are Yes, abhorrent to God. Yes, deserving of God's wrath. Yes, puts you outside of the kingdom, but not uh, something that you cannot repent of and turn from and embrace Christ in the gospel and be saved from. Absolutely. He says in verse 11, after listing all this litany of sinful activities, including homosexuality, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was talking to a group of people who had done these very deeds that he just said could exclude people from the kingdom of God, including homosexuality. And he says that God saved you out of, out of that. So Paul was no stranger to this. The Bible's no stranger to real life in a real world with real fallen people. And we know that people are going to be saved out of all kinds of circumstances and are going to have to deal with the consequences of fallenness, even after they've professed Christ. Now, we believe that through Christ, we have decisive victory over sin. We have the ability through the Spirit to not have to obey sin and its lusts. Um, but we know it's a struggle, right? 
the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that is not is not um, that you have struggles with sin. Actually, the mark of a Christian is that you struggle with sin. Non-Christians are slave to sin, but Christians are marked by this ongoing spirit-inspired fight against the flesh. And no matter how wily and persistent the flesh may feel, the, the Christian is going to be wrestling with that, battling with that through the spirit and experiencing measures of victory. It's not that there's never any faltering along the way. Of course there is. It's not about perfection in your life. It's about the direction of your life being decisively changed. And Article 8 is trying to affirm that. It's trying to say that, look, if you are a person who experiences same-sex attraction and you're wanting to follow Christ, you're not in a special category. You're in the same boat as the rest of us. This is what we're all doing. We're all wrestling with a variety of ways in which our hearts are disordered and are inclining us to evils. And the Holy Spirit is working inside of us to incline us towards Christ. And you're not different than everybody else. You may have a different sin pattern than this guy over here or this girl over there, but you're all basically in the same boat. We're all in this together. We're all contending with the flesh, and through the Spirit, we know that we can have victory. And therefore, like all Christians, as the affirmation says in Article 8, we should walk in purity of life, repenting of sin when it crops up and turning to Christ always. In the denial, Denny, it says that uh, we deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is part of the natural goodness of God's original creation— or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. That first part, it seems like we're answering a specific argument about what uh, was in the original, uh, in, the, in God's original creation. Yeah, you'll hear not only some uh, more progressive or overtly liberal Christians, but also some side B Christians from time to time will say things like maybe same sex attraction or a same sex orientation was a part of God's original good creation. And that parts of it will be restored, even in the age to come, when, when everything is redeemed. And we're saying, no. Um, same-sex attraction is fallen through and through, and it's not something that is going to be showing up. There will be no same-sex attraction in the age to come. When we're in heaven, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no same-sex attraction there. There will be no same-sex orientation. It will have been put to death decisively and every person, and it will be no longer a part of the age to come. When I think of the simplicity and just the clarity of God's original design, his creation in Genesis 1 and 2, you have a man, you have a woman, put in the garden, married by God. Where, where would that even come up? Like how, how could they posit that there's same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation there in the creation? I don't know. To me, it's... It, it doesn't make any sense, at least it, on the reading that I have uh, of the original creation. But uh, to me, in their speculations, what they're doing is they're parsing up same-sex attraction into not just physical components, but relational components. And they're trying to say that these um, same-sex attraction enables certain kinds of special friendships, special maybe even kind of covenant fr covenanted friendships. Maybe you see patterned with like David and Jonathan. And so if you can just take same-sex attraction and say, okay, part of it is sexual and wrong, and then part of it is relational and good, then the gospel re redeems the relational part. And what, what we want to say is actually you shouldn't connect 
the the physical sinfulness of same sex attraction as if that is a part of friendship. <laughs> uh, friendship is this independent thing that has that's not on the spectrum of homosexual feeling. Um, it it is its own distinct thing. Now, homosexual feelings can come in and corrupt that to one degree or another, but you you shouldn't put everybody basically everybody's friendship on the spectrum of heterosexuality and homosexuality. That That's not what the Bible does. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Denny. C.S. Lewis said, those who cannot conceive friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never really had a friend. And I think that that mixing of eros and, and filial love, fr- friendship, uh, I think that that's a, that's a problem. It, it is. And the last thing I'll say about Article 8 the very last phrase there says, it, we deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is, or, or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. And so I just want people to know, look, it doesn't matter what you've done, what experiences you've had, you know, how far you've gone down the rabbit hole of sin. Um, no person is outside the hope of the gospel. Isaiah 59.1 says, The Lord's arm is not too short to save. He knows what you've done. He knows where you've been. And he knows how to save sinners. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, the Bible says that the gospel is for you. And that the gospel can save you and can give you new life through Christ. Um, his death, burial, and resurrection gives you everything that you need for life and godliness, gives you forgiveness from sins, the promise of eternal life, the presence of the Spirit now in this age to keep you walking with Him faithfully until the end. That message is for anybody, and you should never view yourself as outside the reach of God's saving mercy. Amen. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.